Well, uh, good morning. Um, a word to those of you who are new with us. Thank you uh, for joining us this morning. Um, if, in case you're wondering why we're going to the 2:30 service in a couple weeks, it's just because we share this building with another with another church, and uh, they actually own it, so they get to have morning services. They've been meeting somewhere else for the summertime. Um, so um, it's just good to be here. It's good to be here. Good to be with the family of God, and good to be talking about the Word of God, and hopefully seeing something new, something good, something encouraging this morning. And we're going to kind of start off by just talking a little bit about unity and division. Unity and division. I mean, what's up with unity and division in the church? It's, it seems that as long as, it, as the church has existed... These issues have risen, starting with the 12 disciples in Christ's own little family of disciples. You have not only division, you have a straight-up traitor. And you've got it in Paul's ministry, you've got it uh, in Corinth, you've got it in uh, Philippi. You have disunity, division, and then you have just a, a history of it in church, throughout church history. So it's, this is an important, it's an important issue. And, you know, I was just thinking this week as I was preparing, what, what causes divisions in a church or in Christianity? What causes divisions? And, and of course, there are all kinds of things that cause divisions, Right? Bad teaching causes divisions, and pride, and arrogance, and there's just all kinds of nasty selfishness. You know, uh, I, I think that when I was growing up, I didn't know all the details of this. I think I was part of a church that went through some sort of uh, division or split. I was kind of, you know, I was just a kid, so I didn't really know what was going on. But I think it had significantly had to do with uh, something that was happening with the sound system and the carpet and a new building that was being installed. And, you know, it's just... Crazy stuff. So what what causes divisions? Well, it occurred to me this week, as I was thinking about this, that oftentimes, and I think, I don't know, this probably pops up in church history, but I think this is big right now uh, in American evangelicalism. I think one of the things <clears throat> that we we tend to believe causes divisions is those who rally around some call for strict adherence to the scriptures. It's those Bible-banging, intolerant, uh, you know, fundamentalistic. Those are, the, those are often viewed as, as the divisive people. And, and, you know, there's good reason for that. <clears throat> there really is. Because a lot of times that comes with a lot of arrogance and it comes with a lot of pride and a, and a snootiness and you've kind of got theology police, you know, on the prowl. And <clears throat> there, is a, uh, there is something to that. But, you know, I don't know. You've got this, you've got this mentality of love unites and doctrine divides. You ever heard that? I don't like that. Let's just, you know, just kind of boil it all down to the least common denominator and then 
Let's just overlook anything that we really disagree about, and that will unite us. As I told our friends in the Ukraine, you don't want that kind of unity. Unity that comes at the expense of holding fast to the Scriptures. It's those people who are holding fast to the Scriptures that sometimes we're pointing at and saying, those are the ones who are causing division. Let me give you an example. This week, uh, World Magazine, which is a Christian publication, World Magazine uh, published an article by uh, uh, an author named Andrea Siu. Uh, I assume that's how you pronounce her name, S-E-U. And uh, this article, in this article, she heartily, heartily endorsed and unapologetically asserted that the outspoken Mormon politician, Glenn Beck, is without a doubt a Christian, a new creation in Christ, were the words that she used. And conservative evangelicals responded to that pretty quickly and said, you shouldn't say that kind of thing because Mormonism is not compatible with Christianity, with biblical Christianity. So here's the question. Who will, who will be pointed at as the one causing division and who will be identified as the one calling for unity in that situation? I guarantee you that Probably many people in the church, but for sure people outside the church, will look at that and say it's those Bible-banging, fundamental, fundamentalistic Christians. They're, they're so intolerant. They're, they cause divisions even among their own ranks. Well, is that what the Bible teaches Joseph Smith said very clearly, we will inherit the same power, the same glory, the same exaltation until you arrive at the station of a God and ascend the throne of eternal power. This is the doctrine of deification. They, they refer to it as the doctrine of exaltation. Um, deification, you become a God. It's polytheism. Who's the divisive one? The person who says something like that or the person who promotes unity? Well, I think you'll search in vain for any scripture, any teaching in the scriptures that support the notion that unity is to be sought by means of laying scripture aside. I don't see any, any call in scripture for unity that says lay the scriptures aside so that you can be unified. In fact, what I, what I suggest to you is that the scriptures will teach us that the path to unity, and we will see this today in 1 Corinthians, the path to unity is this principle, at least in part, this is part of what it takes for unity in the church body, hold fast to all that God has said. You want unity in the church? Hold fast to all that God has said. It's this, it's, it, and, and when the church doesn't do that, you have rumbling, bad things that start to take place. It happened uh, early, early in Christian, Christianity when a, a man named Arius 
uh, taught that uh, there was a time when Jesus Christ was not. He's looking at passages in the book of Colossians. He said there was a time when Jesus Christ was not. The church, in pursuit of unity, said we've got to go back to the Scriptures. This teaching drove the church back to the Scriptures. They hammered stuff out, and the result is the Nicene Creed, where the church, for the first time in history, articulates that Jesus Christ and the Father of the same essence. There was no time when Jesus Christ was not. And guess what that did? It's unified the church for the last 1,800 years, 1,700 years. United. Hold fast to all the scriptures if you want unity. And we're going to see that today in 1 Corinthians as we take a look at chapter 1. We've already looked at verses 1 through, what do we have? 1 through 9. The first three verses are Paul's greeting, right? You remember this? Paul, an apostle, uh, he greets the church. He identifies who he's speaking to, the church in Corinth, called to be saints. And he gives them a a, a, a greeting, grace and peace to you. The second section, verses 4 through 9, are Paul's thanksgiving section. We start to see in this area of of, uh, the letter... Uh, Paul introducing some of the themes that are going to come out throughout the rest of the letter. Specifically, what Paul does here is he helps us to see that that the Corinthians are actually quite gifted, but there's a problem. They know that they're gifted, and they think that they're pretty, uh, I don't know, they they seem to think that they're pretty great because of their spiritual giftedness, and so Paul is drawing their attention back up to God and saying that those gifts came from God, God gets the glory, you only receive those gifts because you're in Christ, and so Paul gives them a very God-centered worldview to help them get their eyes off of themselves, because as we've already seen in Corinth, there tends to be a problem with um, self-exaltation, self-promotion, it's, it's, it's in the society and it's bleeding into the church. Now, we get to, in verse 10, the first part of the body of the letter. So here he goes. He's going to dive into the issues, and the first thing he does is appeal to them with, with uh, apostolic authority. He says, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a sense of authority coming here. There's a sense of sobriety coming here. He's beginning what uh, I would say is the first of three steps that he's going to take. If, you, if you're taking notes today, I'd split my notes up into three sections, three steps. Step one is this. Paul's going to appeal to them to stop fighting because Christ is not divided. Stop fighting. Christ is not divided. And so with apostolic authority, he appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you that all of you agree. This is the first time he hits this notion of unity. I want you to all agree. Now he's going to say it in a negative way. And that there be no divisions among you. And now he's going to say it a positive way two more times. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I want you to agree. I don't want there to be divisions. I want you to be united in the same mind and the same judgment or the same opinion. I want you guys to come together. 
There's something going on in the church. There's some sort of division going on in the church. Paul knows this because of verse 11. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So Chloe's people, we don't really know who they are. Uh, Whoever Chloe is, I guess we don't even know that she's a believer. But she's got people. (laughs) Maybe the family members. Maybe she owns a business. Whatever the case is, these people have access to the church in Corinth, and they have access to Paul. So some people think possibly this is Chloe is a business owner. She's doing some sort of business that requires her people to travel from Corinth across the Aegean Sea over to Ephesus where Paul is at. Whatever the case is, they come with a report. And this is the report. There is quarreling among you, my brothers. There's fighting quarreling happening in the church. That's what these divisions are. That's what this call for unity is coming from. Now he's going to clarify in verse 12. What I mean is this. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So the first time I heard this, this, uh, this taught, I believe, I think... I think I heard it taught this way. But for some reason, in my mind, I've had this notion that um, what's happening here is people are just kind of choosing their favorite like leader in the church. Seems like that's what it's talking about. And, and I think that's probably a, f- a fair application. And Paul's, Paul's saying, don't choose favorite leaders in the church. Um, I... I, I th- whether or not that's precisely what Paul's doing, please don't do that. <laughs> that's, that's definitely a, a, a fair application. But there's something kind of strange here because if that's all that Paul is saying, then why is he criticizing the group that says we're of Christ? If, if, if he's saying, hey, don't follow Paul, don't follow Apollos, don't follow Peter, You'd think that the point would be like, we're all about Jesus anyways. We're all, we're all following Christ. It's all about Jesus, not about us. Follow Jesus. The problem, if that's what you think is happening here, is that Paul's criticizing the group that's saying, we follow Jesus. So something else I think is probably happening. Does that make sense? You see how, I mean, this is like, this is the, you've got these quarrels going on and the spiritual, spiritual guy comes in and he's like, Yes, I'm following, Je- you know, I'm following Jesus on this one. Oh, yeah, well, okay. I always seem to have some sort of great answer, buddy. Um, okay, so what's happening here? I, I think what, what helped me with this was to realize that there's quarreling taking place. It's not just, oh, I like this guy, I like this guy. There's fighting. And apparently, what's happening is you've got people who are who have different positions in disagreement with one another, and then they're appealing to some authority to back up that position. What that does is indicates that Paul disagrees with Apollos on this one. So I'm, I'm at odds with you, and I take Paul's side. And this guy says, really, that's funny, because this is what Apollo said. And what it, what, it starts to, what it starts to indicate is that there's some division among the leadership. 
And then you've got the other guy coming in and saying, actually, I don't go with Paul or Apollos on that issue. I go with Jesus on that issue. So now you've got Jesus and Paul and Apollos and Cephas all on different pages. And what that implies is that Christ is speaking out of two sides of his mouth. I'm sending Paul, and Paul's saying this. I'm sending Apollos, and Paul's is saying this. I'm sending Cephas, and Cephas is saying this. And I, Jesus, am saying this. And there's disagreement. The implication is that Christ is divided. Christ is divided. He's speaking out of two sides of his mouth. So the reason I think this is probably what's going on is not just because of the quarrels, but because of what Paul says, the rhetorical question that Paul says in verse 13. Is Christ divided? No, Christ is not divided. But the way that you're arguing, the way that you're fighting and appealing to these different authorities to back up your position implies that Christ is divided. Is Christ really divided, Paul says? No, Christ is not divided. So... um, what Paul is calling for here is an end to these disagreements by making the case that Christ is not divided. These guys aren't on different pages. Paul and Apollos and Cephas in Christ are not on different pages. They're not in disagreement. There is one unified, harmonious message that's being delivered by Christ and those whom he has sent to speak on his behalf. The problem is that the Corinthians think that the authorities are in disagreement. Or at least, at the very least, the way that they're fighting and appealing to authorities and saying, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, it it implies that Jesus is divided. So Paul is confronting that. And um, it's just interesting because there's there's just no indication that Paul has any tension with Apollos or with Cephas, and he for sure doesn't have any problem with Jesus. So you read the rest of uh, 1 Corinthians even, the way that Paul talks about Apollos, very, very positively. There's no, there's no tension between Apollos and Paul, as far as you can tell from 1 Corinthians. It's a united leadership. It's a divided body. And so I think that's probably what is, those are the dynamics behind this disagreement um, in Corinth. So as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about division, and I thought, you know, the first question that, that comes to a lot of people's minds is probably when you start talking about division in the church, what's up with all these denominations? Are denominations, or is the existence of denominations a portrait of a divided Christ? The way that the Corinthian church was a portrait of a divided Christ. And I think the answer to that is generally no. Denominations are not a portrait of a divided Christ. Because if you want to talk about a divided Christ in the way that Paul is confronting here, um, this is what you do. So you want to divide Christ? This is what you would do. You portray Christ divided by pitting his appointed authorities against one another as though the authorities were in disagreement when in fact they aren't in disagreement. And then you side with one of them over and against the other. You then 
go to battle and appeal to your authority and this person is appealing to their authority and you battle it out as though the authorities are backing up your differing positions. In your quarreling, you deny the validity of the opposing authority. So, you want to pour, you want to put, paint a picture of a divided Christ in this church, go to battle against one of the appointed authorities, and here what I'm talking about is the scriptures. Okay, because we can be sure that um, Paul and what he was sent to say on behalf of Jesus, and Peter and what he was sent on behalf of Jesus, were, was a united testimony. So, let me just give you an example of what kinds of things can happen. Okay, Romans 3.28. Here's one authority. Here's Paul. We're going to get in a fight. We're going to show, show you where a fight could come from. <laughs> Between Paul, who says this, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, when you stand in the courtroom of God and God justifies you, declares you righteous, it happens by faith apart from the works of the law. This is where, where, this is where, where Luther said, faith alone. Okay. And then you flip over to the book of James, and James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh-oh. <laughs> it, it would appear that they are in direct contradiction to one another. So you want to start a fight and quarrel and show a picture of a divided Christ? Some of you need to side with Paul, and some of you need to side with James. And then you go to battle. That's, how, that's, the, that's a portrait of a divided Christ. I'm, I'm appealing to one authority, holding fast to him, over and against another authority. I don't know of any denominations who have ever started because they sided with Paul over and against James. So if you wanted to, if you, in order for denominations to be a portrait of a divided Christ, the way that the Corinthians are a divided Christ, you'd need to have denominations who were siding up with different biblical authorities. Because that's the issue here in Corinth. That's what they're doing. They're siding up, they're siding up with one authority over another. <laughs> Martin Luther, by the way, said the book of James is an epistle of straw. Oh, oh. Don't say that, dude. <laughs> and it's because of this. Wow. So I say no. Denominations are not a portrait of a divided Christ. They are. You know, have, they have different emphases. They have some different theological positions. They have different philosophies of ministry, and there's room for it. But that's quite different than somebody saying, we reject James. We're going to start a denomination. That would be a divided Christ because that would mean that Jesus is talking out of two sides of his mouth. And he's not here. 
There is a good answer for this. There are several good answers for this. Or several plausible answers for this. I don't think that there's a contradiction here. I'm not going to talk about it right now. So how can we avoid portraying a divided Christ in the sense that Paul is talking about here? Not at the denominational level, but just, just here in our church body. And I would say, just be confident in the harmonious voice of God when you see stuff like this. Be confident that all of the scriptures are God-breathed. You know, I've had, I've had conversations with people and we'll come across a verse like this, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Somebody's tangled up in sin. You know, cheating on their wife, or they're starting to see somebody outside the marriage, or they're, they're, uh, you just see something slip, you just see them slipping. This verse says, hey, humbly and gently, go help them. So you come across a verse like this, and in this conversation, somebody says, well, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. As though, like, well, I don't care what Galatians says. This is what Jesus says. I'm just thinking, you, did you, you just like scratch that verse out of your Bible or what? I, I mean, both of these are the Word of God. And a, and a much better response to this situation is to go, huh. I guess when Jesus says, judge not, that you be not judged, he doesn't mean we shouldn't lovingly, gently confront people when they're in sin. I wonder what he does mean. Okay, good. Good question. It's going to take some work now. You're going to have to think through that. Do some, do some homework. Do some studying. Do some praying. Try to put these pieces together. But I just want to commend to you the default presupposition. It harmonizes. It makes sense. It might take some work, but it makes sense. If, you, if, if your knee-jerk reaction to stuff like this or stuff like James and, and Paul is skeptical contrarianism, you will find no shortage of opportunities for it in this book. You will spend your whole life just being thrown off, feeling skeptical, being a contrarian, and you will never be satisfied. And you know what? You're going to be divisive in the body of Christ. Just a contrarian. Not trusting in the default position in your heart that the Word of God is faithful and true and it coheres. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that you might have some very serious mental snags. Just stuff you come across that are hard issues. And it's going to take some time to work through that. You're going to need to get some brothers and sisters around you, help you work through some things. But can I just encourage you, as that process is unfolding, in your heart, pray for this, that God would give you a sense of just trust that this is going to, this is going to make sense. Someday, it might not even be while you're alive, but it will make sense. And it's okay to look for answers. 
The word of God has been tried and tested and found incomparably faithful by some of the most incredible minds in history, people with incredible intellectual integrity. You do not have to commit intellectual suicide to be a Christian or to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. You're just going to have to work hard. And while you're working, I pray for you, New Hope, I pray for myself, that our hearts would just be just be calm and trust that the Word of God is faithful and true. So, all of that is just some points of application leaping off of this first step, this thing that Paul is setting us up for here by saying Christ is not divided. He doesn't say different things in different places and contradict himself. Stop fighting, Corinthians, and holding fast to your favorite side as though those sides disagree with one another. That's what's going on in Corinth. Step two. Paul says, stop siding with Paul. When, when, when I say that Christ is... When I say that Christ is not... Um, sorry about that. It's just going to be yellow for a minute. <laughs> when I say that, that Christ is not divided, Paul says, believe everything that's being said by those whom Christ sins. Step two, stop siding with me. Over and against Apollos, over and against Cephas, perhaps over and against Christ. I don't know what's going on in Corinth. So here's what Paul does next. Verse 13, he asked two more rhetorical questions. He's already asked, is Christ divided? Answer, no. Okay. Well, two more rhetorical questions. Was Paul crucified for you? This is, this is supposed to sound ridiculous. Of course the Corinthians are going to be like, well, no, of course not. Okay. Was, uh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Or maybe even the Greek could be rendered, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Answer, obviously, no. Paul was not crucified for us. Paul was, we were not baptized into Paul's name. Paul is just saying, then get off me. <laughs> you're Christ's. You're not Paul's. You're Christ's. Now, of course, there was a group who was claiming to be Christ, but they were saying, we're Christ's over and against Paul. We're Christ's over and against Apollos. That's, Paul's not pushing them towards that. He's saying, you're not of Paul, you're of Christ, so embrace everything that Christ has said, no matter who it's coming from. You belong to Jesus, not to me. Um, he just doesn't want these loyalists. He's trying to shake them off. That's what he's doing in step two. And apparently there's some connection between, the fact, uh, between these loyalists and the fact that he baptized some people. So, check this out in verse uh, 14. I thank God that I baptized none except Crispus and Gaius. Why? So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he remembers, oh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Okay, you just see his personality coming up. You see, like, the, the you know, he's, he's writing or he's, he's got, some, he's got a, a manuensis writing for him and he's sitting there. And he goes, oh, wait, one more thing. <laughs> the, the, the point is, I, I'm just glad, that, you know, for some reason, I've got people who are, 
who are loyal to me and to what I have to say over and against other people just because I baptized them. And it makes me just glad I didn't baptize a bunch of people so that you wouldn't, so that I wouldn't have this giant following of, of, of people. So step one, stop fighting. Christ is united. He's not divided. Listen to everything he has to say. Step two, stop listening only to Paul. Get off me. Uh, I'm not the only person who's, who's, who's been sent by Jesus. Step three, you need to listen to me. He just, he just flips it. Check this out. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. So baptism is just kind of a transition point for him here. He's not going to return to it for like 10 chapters. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the, God, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What we seem to have here is a very humble and wise strategy for opening the ears of the Corinthians. He calls for the end of divisive loyalties, starting with those in his own camp, and then proceeds from there to explain that Christ sent him with a message as well. So he levels the playing field, and then he says, okay, you, if, you need to stop choosing sides, and you need to listen to everybody, and I'm one of those everybody. You need to listen. It indicates, as we will see more clearly in the months to come, that Paul's call for unification, his call for the end of loyalties, is largely for the sake of helping the Corinthians embrace him. It's, it, it's Paul that's being largely rejected here. The next four chapters, Paul is just going to launch. He, just, he, go, he jumps right from verse 17. This talk of the gospel, this talk of eloquent wisdom, this talk of the cross, this talk of power, it's, it's, the, it's the subject for the next three and a half chapters. This is what Paul really cares about. Paul's gospel, Paul's message is being largely rejected by the Corinthians. Or at least there's, there's enough questions about it that he needs to seriously address it. So there's some small party who likes Paul. But it's really, it's really that people are questioning his apostleship and therefore questioning his message, that is, his gospel. And that's why it's not a problem for Paul to do this. Paul, Paul's not saying, listen to me, because Paul wants to have some, you know, he's all, he's all caught up on himself. He just wants to have a voice. Um, it's the message. It's the gospel that's at stake. Paul knows that, and Paul knows that the Corinthians need to hear it. And in verse 17, I think we start to see why they're rejecting Paul's message. Verse 17, once again, look at it. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. I, I was not sent to preach with eloquent wisdom. That was not my job when I came to Corinth. Guess who was a very eloquent speaker? A Jew, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. A lot of scholars think that after Paul left Corinth, Apollos comes in. I mean, we know that Apollos was there. 
Apollos comes in. He's an eloquent speaker. Very good speaker. And the Corinthians grow a distaste for Paul because they love the way that that Apollo speaks. I think that's probably what's going on here. Apollo spent some time there. They heard him speaking. They're like, man, that dude can preach. And they start associating his eloquence with wisdom. They just make a a, a direct correlation to the eloquent speaking of Apollos and, and, and wisdom. And Paul's like, man, we have got to talk about wisdom. Because the, the Corinthians are, are off base on it. They don't understand what, what wisdom is. And so that's what Paul's going to jump into. I'm not going to dive into this verse today, verse 17. There's, there really is, uh, this really is a major transition in the letter. I'm not going to go into the, the logic here. I'll just point it out very quickly. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. I want to preserve the power of the cross. And that's why I didn't preach with eloquence. There's, there's something that is intentionally happening. You, it could be that Paul was, was actually a, a decent speaker. But we'll find out that he intentionally goes to Corinth and takes a certain demeanor in the way that he speaks. Why? so that power is on display. The power of the cross. And that's what we're going to look at for the next few months as we go through the next several chapters here is Paul's tutorial on the gospel, Paul's tutorial on power, wisdom, and true spirituality. This man loved his gospel. The Corinthians were all kinds of messed up and it, was, it had to do with, with some things that directly related to the nature of the gospel and, and confusing what's really powerful with what only appears to be powerful. The sophists, sophists the Greek rhetoricians, um, had incredible power over people. They could convince you to believe. They, they would just take. They would just take you right where they wanted you to go. And 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 the better you were at it, the more prestige you had. Just incredible ability to persuade. And Paul does not go that path. And we'll talk about it. Why don't you bow your heads and please please close with me here. Lord Jesus, we want to love this gospel. We want to see the power of the gospel. We want to we want to understand what Paul understood when he saw the power of the gospel. My prayer, my prayer for New Hope Fellowship as we go into this next season is is. Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ crucified. And as we launch into that, I pray that we would be mindful of Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians to embrace all all the fullness of what you have said for us. That we would listen to the harmonious voices of Christ. And that we would not lay aside teachings like Paul's when they're hard.
And that we would not confuse the power of the gospel with eloquence and beauty of speech and beauty of presentation, which are gifts for sure, but it's not the power. And I pray that in New Hope Fellowship, in the years to come, we would rightly recognize the source of power. Keep our mission clear and before us, Lord. May this, may this simple message be even a demonstration of how, of how you can use simple people to do great things. We pray these things in Christ's name.